Good morning again. You're like, sit down, Jason. Great day. (laughs) No, I won't. If I was a cussing man, no. Anybody have one of these this morning? Somebody had one. Raise your hands. Huh? Pumpkin, cream cheese, muffins. Okay, now the hands are going up. I love pumpkin cream cheese muffins. This is what's left of the pumpkin cream cheese muffins. There may be one in the van because my wife loves me. Whoever, when you were in school, you had something, some candy or something in your pocket, and you brought it out, and you're getting ready to eat it, and your teacher said, do you have enough to share? You're like, no. Well, you shouldn't bring something unless you've got enough to share with everybody. Like pumpkin, cream cheese, muffins, <clears throat> right? Yeah. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you didn't have enough to share? Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually? Don't come unless you got enough to share with everybody. It's kind of a mantra. And I think what we're going to see this morning is, I don't know that it's a good mantra in and of ourselves. Open your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to continue our study in the book of John which has been phenomenal, by the way. <clears throat> I was listening to one of the messages that I was... I think I was in children's church for. And man, how good is the Bible? I mean, really. I won't puff up Moon or Andrew or Hamlet. Arlene, you got enough of that to share? Is everybody? Okay. <clears throat> I'm just playing... <laughs> It's a joke. Uh Uh-oh, that's what I get for joking, right? But, uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't. (laughs) I've run through. Run through. You can chew all the gum you want, Arlene. We're fine with it. Everybody okay with Arlene chewing gum? Okay, say amen. Okay, they're not okay with it. Okay, Um, the Bible is so good. And the book of John is so good. And I'm so excited about what... God is doing through His Word in our midst. And we're going to read a... uh, It's a little bit lengthy passage, but it's definitely worth it. Uh, We'll have it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible um, so that you can see it. Let me pray, then we'll read the passage. God, we ask for Your Spirit's empowerment this morning. We believe in the power of Your Word. We believe it is enough for everybody. Whether a person sits here this morning and knows You, whether a person sits here this morning and is saved or is not, Your Word is powerful. So we trust that. Now we ask that You would use Your Spirit, God, to move and to change us to draw us to You, to convict us, 
And chiefly, God, that You would, by the power of Your Spirit, use Your Word to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, You are our teacher. And we submit to You and Your sovereign power this morning. Take us deeper. Draw us closer. And do what only You can do, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me turn this little... John chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 21. Unpackage it and then pull out some application for it. Uh, If you're ready to jump in, say amen. Good, three of you. Here we go. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up His eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward Him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test Him, for He Himself knew what He would do. Philip answered Him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of His disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when He had given thanks, He distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, He told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that He had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who was coming to the world! Exclamation point. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. When evening had come, His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But He said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take Him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Wow. A lot just happened in front of our very eyes. We're going to unpack it. We're going to go verse by verse. We're going to unpack this thing and we're going to see some stuff. I I, I saw some stuff that I'd never seen before. And I want us to dive in and literally just go through this and see. I I thought, man, it would be great if we could kind of separate this passage and maybe do the feeding and then maybe next week do the walking on the water. What we're going to find out is they don't work without each other. They're they're necessary for each other. So, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, after this is kind of a generic term. It's an unspecified amount of time because where did we last see Jesus? Where did we leave off in chapter 5? He was in Jerusalem. Okay, Jerusalem is here. Galilee's up here as far as Israel goes. So it wasn't like this was like the next day or something. It's probably a couple days walk, two or three days walk up to Galilee. We don't know how long after this was after this. Okay? Not really that important. 
Uh, you're going from, remember he had healed the guy at the pool of Bethesda. Then he had the long dialogue with the Pharisees about why he was doing what he was doing on the Sabbath, that kind of stuff. That's where we were in chapter five. But now specifically, a lot of Jesus' ministry was on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. Here, he's actually in the northeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee at a place called Bethsaida. Okay? So he's kind of, and it says in a minute, that, that it's a lonely place. They kind of went there to get away. Kind of a retreat. Jesus and His disciples are having a retreat on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. So, verse 2, And a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Now, at this point, we're about we're getting to about the midpoint of Jesus' ministry. He's not an obscure rabbi anymore. He's got His twelve guys and some people that travel around with them but what's happening is a large crowd is following him. Everywhere he goes, large crowds are starting to gather. Why? Why are they following him? It tells us in, in the text. Why are they following him? Somebody read it. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Why are they following him? Hey, this guy is pretty stinking cool. You know, sick people, bring them. He can heal them. That's what's going on with them. So, are they right in doing that? Are they wrong in doing that? We'll see later. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now, it sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, right? At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up on a hillside, brings His disciples to Him, and He sits down. Why did He sit down? Rabbis taught while they were sitting down. So they would gather their disciples, disciples are watching, then the rabbi sits down, the disciples automatically know, oh, he's about to teach us something. So he's got a crowd there, but he brings his disciples together and he sits down to teach his disciples. That's what's going on there. Now, this sets a tone for us. Verse 4, the Passover was at hand, or actually Passover. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Now, for us to properly grasp what's going on here, <clears throat> the only thing that I can think about, I wish Resurrection Week was as big for us, but what's the biggest holiday that we celebrate? Christmas. So think Christmas here. Think going into malls and everybody's celebrating Christmas, whether they're Christians or not, right? Music playing, garland hanging. Think that. Think the pervasiveness of the Passover in Israel at this time, because it is pervasive. You don't get away from the Passover, whether you're a Jew or not, if you're in Israel at this time. It is pervasive. Everybody's thinking Passover. It's a mentality of everyone, whether they're involved in the feast or not. And this creates a very, very blatant mindset. The people are thinking Moses. They're thinking deliverance. They're thinking freedom from being slaves. They're thinking lambs. They're thinking sacrifice. They're thinking blood. They're thinking deliver us, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. It's pervasive in what people are saying, what people are thinking, what people are feeling. And at this time in first century Palestine, what were the Jews thinking anyway? Deliver us, deliver us. Deliver us from Roman oppression. We are God's people. We're not Caesar's people. God, will you hear our cry? God, will you deliver us? And then at Passover, it reaches a fevered pitch. It's just on everybody's mind. Save us. Deliver us. Lamb, blood, Passover. Moses, Moses. Verse 5. 
Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, Jesus sees this crowd, and we'll talk in a minute about how big this crowd was. Little preview, spoiler alert, it's big. Big. Okay? So what does he do? He sees this crowd coming. I didn't see him. And he looks over at Philip, one of his disciples. Hey, Philip, um, where can we buy some bread so that all these people can eat? Philip. Now imagine being Philip for a second. Uh, uh, now verse 6 for me presents a problem. And I hope it hope that we resolve this problem before we get done with the message. Why did he ask Philip that? Huh? Somebody say it loud so I can hear you. To test him. Jesus said this to Philip in order to test Philip. That doesn't seem very nice, does it? Huh? Like what I said to Arlene. It wasn't very nice, was it? Jesus purposefully looks at this man, Philip, and He says, I'm going to test him with a question. You say, well, God doesn't test people. Oh, yes, He does. Oh, yes, He does. Now, He will never tempt you with evil, but He will test you. And we'll see, again, before we finish this message, just what that looks like sometimes. He wanted to look at Philip, and He wanted to see... Philip, how would you solve this problem? Philip, where is your hope to feed these people? Where was my hope to get a pumpkin cream cheese muffin this morning? Because it was lavishly destroyed. Where was Philip's hope? What would Philip look to in order to solve an impossible problem? Let's see. Verse 7, Philip answered him, Well, let me do the math, Jesus. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get how much? How much? A little. Philip replies with no hope whatsoever. None. He's got no hope. We can't do it, Jesus. Now, a denarius was about one day's wage, so Philip was basically saying, if we had the money somebody would make after working for a full year which seems to imply that they didn't have that money, okay? And if we spent all of that money just on bread, it still wouldn't be enough for all of these people to even have a little. Some would get nothing and most would get very, very little if we spent a year's wages just on bread. So Philip is saying, Jesus, we we can't. Philip, where are we going to buy enough bread to feed these people? Philip says... We're not going to. It can't happen. Now, in a parallel passage, they tell Jesus, send these people away so that they can go and buy bread. Jesus looks at them and says, you give them something to eat. That's And we'll get, we'll get into a parallel passage later too. I just keep building toward later. That's, that's on purpose, by the way. Verse 8, Andrew's got an idea. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter brother, said to him, that verse is pretty self-explanatory. We know who Andrew is, another one of his disciples. Andrew says, ding, 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 there's a boy here 
who has five barley loaves and two fish. But uh, hmm. what are they for so many? Now, let me give you an idea about what Andrew is basically saying. Let's say that you and I are in a, a car dealership that, that sells Ferraris. Okay? How much does Ferrari cost? Anybody know? Let's just say a lot. Okay? Yeah, more than 200 denarii, that's for sure. So we're standing in the showroom and we see this bright cherry red Ferrari. It's me and Greg. I'm like, Greg, let's buy this thing. He's like, okay. And we walk over and we look at the sticker price. $175,000. Hmm. If I'm Andrew, I'm like, I got $3.68. Let's do this. I mean, it's literally foolish what he's saying. Okay? Because we're going to talk in a second about how big this crowd was. I mean, Andrew is not saying, we can use this. That's not what he's saying. He's like, this is what we've got. And it's not enough, Jesus. It's not even close to enough. What are they for so many? Next verse. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Okay? At least if they're going to go hungry, they won't have to stand around all day. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about how many? 5,000 in number. Now who sat down? The men. Doesn't include the women and children who were probably there as well. Some commentators say that with women and children, the number of this crowd could have been as much as 20,000 people. 20,000 people. I feel like Dr. Evil in Austin Powers. 20,000 people. Now listen, that's a lot of people, people. How many, anybody know how many people the armory seats? I'm sorry, the Raleigh County Convention Center? 2,800 and some odd some. Fill it ten times. That's how many people are there. And they've got five barley loaves and two fish. Jesus says, have them sit down. Have all 20,000 of them sit down. <laughs> Jesus then took the loaves, and when He had given thanks, He distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish. How much? <laughs> as much as they wanted. Now for the miracle. I don't know what happened here, but it happened in Jesus' hands. Okay? That's important. He took the loaves and the fish, He thanked God for them, then passed out the food, and note the end of the verse, as much as they wanted. Wow! Now stop a second. What if there was one cream cheese pumpkin muffin on this plate? And everybody that came back there said, I'd like to have one. Here you go. Here you go. Here you go. I'd like to have another one. Here you go. Here you go. Something fantastic just happened. 20,000 people ate as much as they wanted with five barley loaves and two fish. 
we've read this too many times. It is so boring to us. Jesus fed 5,000 men. That could have been as many as like 20,000 people with five barley loaves. What? Seriously, grab a hold of what just happened here. And remember who it is that did it. Remember who we sang about this morning. As much as they wanted. Verses 12 and 13. And when they had eaten their fill, He told His disciples, gather up the leftover fragments. What? That nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. He didn't just feed 20,000 people. They gathered the leftovers and had twelve baskets. Now when they say baskets, this is like the type of basket that they let Paul down out of the wall. This wasn't basket. This was basket. Twelve of them of leftover fragments. After 20,000 people had eaten all that they wanted and were satisfied, this is what they had left over. Now listen, I'm going to slip some application in here real quick. We'll get more application at the end. But listen, what do we do when there's more than enough after God provides? We're so scared that He may not provide and He's providing leftovers. Are we careful to gather up those leftovers? Maybe for later? Maybe for somebody else? I'll jump off that. Just wonder. Is there significance in that it was 12 baskets? There probably is. We're not going to get into that this morning. Um, it's, not, it's not in the flow of thought that we're working on. Now, when the people saw the sign that He had done, word started getting through the crowd. You know we started with five barley loaves and two fish, right? What? Man, I'm stuffed. Yeah. So they said what? Passover, deliverance, Moses. <gasps> this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. And they're looking around, saucer-eyed. <gasps> the prophet. Who's the prophet? This refers back to Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to Him. Now remember, they're in Passover mode. And they're thinking Moses. They're bringing Moses' words back to remembrance all the time. And all of a sudden, in this Passover feeding frenzy, which adds to the fever, Moses pops up. Deliverance. Miracle. Moses. Passover. Deliverance. Prophet! Prophet. It's Him. This is the one that Moses told us about, which gets them thinking what? Deliverance, freedom, oppression gone, God's people us, we win, victory, prophet, prophet, prophet. God has heard our cry and is giving us what we're asking for. We're going to be delivered. This guy is the one. Let's do this. Prophet, prophet, prophet. And it gets a little crazy. Now watch what happens perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king. What did Jesus do? Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. Jesus sees this misguided passion and He withdraws. He knew what they wanted, what they intended to do, and He made sure that it didn't happen. 
I love how Jesus just seems to slip through the crowd sometimes. It says that his time wasn't at hand, so he slipped through the crowd. They tried to throw him off a cliff one time. It says he passed through their midst. They're prophet, 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 prophet. He's like, and he's gone. And they're going, prophet? Prophet? Where'd the prophet go? He's up here on the mountain. Now, what I'm about to do is, anybody ever heard of the merged gospels? It's not a shameless pitch for it, but this is pretty good stuff right here. This guy, Gary Crossland, has taken all four Gospels, and I wish I could really explain to you what he's done. But if you see here, he's got parallel passages from the Gospels beside each other, and then he merges them together without losing a word and puts it in one seamless passage. Pretty handy tool. At the time that I got this for Christmas, he was giving it away for donations, literally. You could get the audio version or the print version. Now, I'm going to switch to this and we're going to go away from this because what happens in the parallel passages of the Gospels from here on out give us a lot of clarity as far as what happens from this point on. Okay, And if you can get your hands on one of these, do it. It's worth it. I don't agree with everything that he's merged. There's some, you know, were there two Sermon on the Mounts? Was it two? It doesn't matter. Okay, At this point, I would encourage you to get a hold of this work. So... Um, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. What happens next, which is walking on the water, is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John. Now seeing what the other Gospel writers record help us to get the fullness of what is about to happen. Now I'll be reading from the merged Gospels. So let me just back up a touch. In the merged Gospels, the start of what we were doing and then moving into the next phase reads like this. And then Jesus, knowing that they were about to come and to take Him by force that they might make Him king, immediately He compelled His disciples to go into the boat and to go before Him to the other side to Bethsaida while He sent the crowds away. His disciples went down to the sea and they entered into the boat. Now, let me set this again. Jesus knew the crowd's intention and He did not want His disciples getting caught up in this mob mentality because... You could see that they wanted the same thing too. They wanted deliverance. They wanted. They knew something was up with this guy. They're following him around for probably a year and a half, maybe two years at this point. And they're like, we we've seen him change water into wine. We've seen him do. Maybe maybe they're right. Maybe this guy is the prophet. So Jesus says, get in the boat, get out of here. The word compelled that that was mentioned here says that he compelled his disciples to go into the boat implies that Jesus was not asking them or making a light suggestion. He is saying, get out of here. And note that He didn't go with them. He sent them before Him. Now, don't you think this would be a good teaching time for Jesus? Sit down in a boat. Let's cross the water. Guys, let me tell you what just happened. It'd be a good time to do that, wouldn't it? Well, a time to sit down and explain what He did, why He did it, and why the crowd was wrong. Might have been a good teaching opportunity, but watch how he teaches them now. Again, reading from the merged Gospels. If I can find my place. Here it is. His disciples went down into the into the, his disciples went down to the sea and they entered into the boat. And after bidding them farewell, and after he had sent the crowds away, he departed and went up again to the mountain alone by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone on the land, but 
they were going over the sea to Capernaum and darkness had already come and Jesus had not come to them. Jesus is alone praying. The disciples are out on the lake in the dark. Now listen, get a hold of what they thought about the lake. The lake represented the abyss for them. You ever hear about the Bible talking about the abyss and the place of the dead? These disciples, as much as they were on this water, still feared this lake. It, it, it symbolized death and the place of no return. So quick aside, anybody ever gone fishing in the New River? Okay, yeah? When I was like eight or nine, my dad would take me fishing in the New River. And to give you kind of a picture of how they felt about this lake... Every time we, we wade fished, we'd walk out into the middle of the river, you know, do this. I just like getting wet is what it boiled down to. I didn't care if I caught anything. But every time we would set foot in the river, my dad would say, River of Death, Jason. What? River of Death. That's what the Indians called it. You know why? Because they drown in this river all the time. There's undercurrents that'll grab you. They'll take you down the river. And I'm like, shouldn't we just be on this? We could do it from over there, Dad. But I did develop a healthy respect for the river of death. Okay, These disciples thought about this lake as death, place of no return, the place where evil spirits were. That's how they thought about this lake. And again, they were on it all the time as fishermen, but they did not want to be out there in the dark in the middle of the sea. They would usually kind of... We'll get to that in a second. I don't want to get them. Fear was starting to creep in with these disciples. Now, let me read through the next passage here. Therefore, when they had rowed about 25 or 30 stadia, the boat was in the middle of the sea, away from the land, battered by the waves, and the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Now they would usually have tried to stay close to the shore to keep this from happening. If they were going from here to here, they'd stay close to the shore and go this way. Not smart to get out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Storms came up all the time. Hot air would blow in, mixed with cold air from down on the mountains, and it would just swirl. It was just a mess. And they knew that. So, after rowing 25 or 30 stadia, which is about four miles, anybody ever got on one of those upchuck causers called a rowing machine? Anybody ever worked out on a rowing machine? Don't, okay? Let me just tell you. You will vomit is what will happen when you get on the rowing <laughs> So here are these guys in this boat rowing three or four miles against the wind. It's not a pretty picture. They're working hard and they are scared. And what happens is they go about four miles and they were in the worst place they could be in the storm. They were in the middle of the sea. And they were getting battered by wind and by waves. Things could not have been any worse. Now put yourself in their place for a minute. Just a few hours ago, they're standing on the mountain going, Prophet, Prophet, yes, Prophet. Uh, he just fed 20,000 people. We got 12 baskets full leftovers sitting around. This is great. And then all of a sudden, oh, we are going to die. They want deliverance, but they want a different kind of deliverance right now. Again, I've got a, a deep sea story that I won't tell. I'll tell you at lunch if you want to hear it. Um, do you not care that we're perished, Lord? Um, things couldn't have been any worse. Put yourself in their place. Going from excitement with the miracle to what you feel is certain death. From the mountaintop, literally, to the depth of the sea. They were as low as they could go but then. And He was seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was contrary to them. 
At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking upon the sea. Now get this, and he intended to pass by them. But the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, for they all saw him and they were frightened. You figure? How scared would you be if you're rowing your guts out and somebody comes? What in the world? They were frightened. Now there's a lot here. But look at the God-man in action here. First of all, he could see them from where he was. He couldn't, you couldn't see them if you were on top of that mountain and they were out in the middle of the lake. He could see them, which is a miracle in my mind. And he could see that they were straining at the oars. At the fourth watch of the night, which starts at 3 a.m., here comes Jesus walking on the water. Again, breathe that in for a second. Jesus is walking on water. Did you hear what I said? I don't suggest trying that. Any of you. Ever. You're like, I can walk on the water when it freezes. This was not frozen. This was stormy sea. Here we see the fifth of the signs that John records for us. We saw water to wine, healing the official son, healing the paralytic in Bethesda, the feeding of the 5,000. Now the fifth sign, Jesus Christ is walking on water. He's walking on water. Yeah, that, that. That's what he's doing. And then he's going to pass him by. Say, guys, how you doing? They see him and they're scared to death. Well, of, of course they are. Now check this out. They supposed that it was a ghost and they cried out with fear. Ah! But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This is the climax of the story, by the way. There's no innocent statement here. This is the lesson that He wanted to teach them. It's not about fishes or loaves. It's not about the crowd. It is about Him. His lesson is Him announcing Himself with the statements, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, you probably have heard this before. If you haven't, this is fantastic. The words, it is I, the phrase, it is I, is literally translated, I am. So let me read it that way and let me let you, let you hear what he said. Take courage, I am. Do not be afraid. Mm. The crowds had been suggesting that Jesus might actually be the prophet that Moses had foretold. Jesus says to the disciples what God had said to Moses. I am. I am that I am. Who should I tell them sent me? You tell them I am sent you, is what God had said to Moses. And here on the waves in the middle of the lake, Jesus says, I am. Lesson? Yeah. It's so much more than what you thought, guys. You thought I was a prophet? Well, I am. But I'm more than just a prophet. Jesus divulges His full divinity 
to a bunch of sheet-white, scared-to-death disciples at about four in the morning while he's walking on the water. And then he tops it off with, don't be afraid. Let me expand on that a little. Here's where having the rest of the story from the other Gospels really helps our study. He just said, it's I, don't be afraid. Matthew records this. But answering him, Peter said, what? Lord, if it's you, if you are I am, allow me to come to you on the waters. Ha. (laughs) And Jesus said, come. And going down from the boat, Peter came to Jesus walking on the waters. But seeing the strong wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me! And immediately Jesus stretched out His hand and laid hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Now wait a second. You of little faith? Dude got out of the boat. Peter was walking on the water. Peter made a good... This was a good Peter moment in my mind. I mean, yeah, he sank, but doggone, great day. I mean, seriously. Peter has one of his good moments where he asked Jesus to identify himself. If it's really you, Jesus, call me, Peter, to come out and walk on the water with you. Jesus does. Peter gets going, gets his eyes off Jesus, starts to sink, calls out to Jesus, is saved, gets scolded for a lack of faith, and then they get back in the boat. Now, Matthew 14.33. Turn your Bibles there. Matthew 14.33. It's the next verse. That's that's not true. I'm going to read 32. And then 43. Or 33, I'm sorry. Matthew 14.32 and 33. Let's start in 32, quickly. And they got into the boat with them. So Jesus and Peter get in the boat. And the wind stopped. And they were greatly amazed and wondered. They get in the boat, the wind stops, and to say the least, they're impressed and relieved. Now watch this, 1433, And those in the boat came and bowed to Him saying, What? Truly, you are God's Son. What happens after this miracle? Worship. Recognition. They see for themselves that Jesus is the Son of God. And they proclaim it to Him. Nobody was worshiping when the multitude was fed. Everybody was in feeding frenzy mode. Prophet, 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 prophet. All they could think about with the feeding of the five or twenty thousand was what's in this for me? Freedom, deliverance, provision, food, barley loaves, fish, me, 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 leftovers. This is what I get. But when this miracle happens, worship. You say, were the disciples caught up in that? Mark records this in the same passage, for they did not understand concerning the loaves, for their heart had been hard. They didn't get the fullness of what Jesus was doing with the loaves because their hearts were hard. But this miracle, this softened their hearts. And they proclaimed Him as the Son of God and they worshipped Him. Now can you imagine being on this boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, the wind stops, Jesus, You are the Son of God. And just imagine the stillness on that lake. 
and them going. This is so much bigger than I ever thought it was. Jesus, you are so much more than I ever thought that you were. My heart was hard with the loaves and the fish, but this, Jesus, this is something altogether different. And immediately, John 6.21b, and immediately the boat came to the land to which they were going. Is this a mini miracle? Probably. Because they were in the middle of the lake, right? Jesus gets in the boat. They're back at land. They're where they're going. Now when Jesus gets in the boat, you're already home, by the way. That's good news. What a passage. Now let me ask you the important question. What does it mean for us now? That happened 2,000 years ago. This is a historical account. This is not a story. It is a story, but it's a true story. It's a non-fiction story. Let me say it that way. It is a story, but it's a non-fiction story. It's not made up. It's not legend. It's true. But what does it mean for us today, 2014? First of all, let's look at Jesus looking past the crowd. He is most interested in these 12 men that He is training as His disciples. Oh, He fed the crowd, and He did it out of compassion for them, but He did it strategically to teach His men. Remember what He said? He was testing Philip. He asked the question to test Philip. Philip, where are we going to buy enough bread to feed these people? And He was most interested in Philip's response because He would know from there how to deal with Philip. So He's looking at the crowd, but He's interested in Philip. He's looking at the crowd, but he's looking at these 12 men. He listens to Andrew. Andrew, you trying to be funny? Man, it just had to be torturous being around Jesus all the time. Because he was like, I know what you're thinking. I would just, Matt Chandler says, I would just sit in the corner and say, nothing, 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 nothing. He said, because I know that he knows what I'm, nothing, nothing, nothing. He's so interested in these men. He tests Philip. He listens to Andrew. He scuttles them off when things get in a frenzy. All of this was done for their growth and development. Now listen. Oh, that we had this mindset as a church and as individuals. That we weren't necessarily concerned about reaching the masses. We've got a world to reach. Yes, but how are we going to do it? The same way that Jesus did it, by training and equipping people and making them mature in Christ so that they can go out and reach the world with us. We don't have to save the whole world, but we do have to train the people in front of us so that we can all go out shoulder to shoulder and try to win the whole world. We're all accountable. We need not neglect the needs of the masses, but we should meet these needs as we train our disciples. Yes, your disciples. Your spouse, your children, your brother, your friend, the stranger that you don't know yet. We should be living strategically in order to help them grow and advance in the faith. Jesus said, I sanctify myself for their sake. That's the mentality of a disciple maker. And oh, that we had that mentality. The model of Jesus is always about His glory shown to their benefit. Where are your disciples and what are you doing to help them mature? You say, well, I, I'm not a teacher. I'm not asking you to be a teacher. 
I'm asking you to make disciples. Well, don't you have to teach? Absolutely. Jesus said, as you're going, turn people into disciples. You know what that means? That means as you live your everyday life, live in such a way that you're showing the glory of God so that those around you see it and are drawn to Him through you. That's what discipleship is all about. Second application point. Let's not jump on the boat of making the little boy who gave his lunch the hero of this story. Okay? Anybody ever sit in the Sunday school lesson here? You need to be like this little boy and you need to give Jesus everything you have. And Jesus will be so happy. What's wrong with that mindset? You said, well, nothing. Well, yes. The little boy did give all he had, but all that he had was woefully inadequate. I'd love to give you all a pumpkin cream cheese muffin, but I can't now. What if I tried? Here, let me push these to, here, I'll try to push this together and I'll make a, after I get my fingers all over it, you'll really want it. And I'll kind of fashion it into one, it don't work. I could give you everything I have here on this plate and it's going to not satisfy you. You're not going to get a glimpse of what a pumpkin cream cheese muffin is really like. What you need is a quiet table, a cup of coffee, these hot out of the oven, that's what you really need. Good conversation, melts in your mouth. That's not going to do it. The little boy gave everything he had. Praise God for that. But it was not enough in and of itself. In and of itself. He's not a bad guy. Don't get me wrong. But he's not the focus here. The focus here is the glory of God being put on display as Jesus takes what would have been a bad joke if offered on its own and He turns it into a miracle. And the application for us is simple. Don't give Jesus your best or even your everything and think that that is what is going to make the difference. Jesus, I'll give you everything. It's woefully inadequate in and of itself. Lost person, if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus, do not try to clean yourself up to make yourself better so that Jesus will accept you. It is inadequate. You cannot do it. Saved person, don't sit here and bite your cheek and say, I'll do better today. It's not enough. It is woefully inadequate. What is adequate is to come and say, all I have to give you, Jesus, is my sin. All I have to give you, Jesus, is my anxiety. And what is that for so much need around me? And He says, I'll take it and I will work a miracle through you. You're not the hero here. I am. And I can do what you cannot do. Your giving is not the focus. If it is, your focus is wrong. Romans 11, verses 33-36 through 36 really put this in perspective. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. You don't get repaid for giving anything to God. God, I'll give you this. I'll give you my tithe. Therefore, you are supposed to bless my finances. 
God, I will give you the first part of my day, so the rest of my day should be really good. It all belongs to Him, and He alone should get the glory for everything done in or through you. Our best is never even close enough. I've got no problem with the thought of giving God your best, but I don't expect my best to be enough to show God's glory. Only God can do that through a miracle of His grace. Third point application. We just read about Jesus doing at least two incredibly miraculous things. Now I'm going to ask you straight, blunt, what are you believing that God can do in, for, and through you? Are you really trusting God to be God in your life? Nobody can do what we just read that Jesus did. Nobody. And we wonder if we can get by with our pay if we miss a day of work. He fed 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He walked on the water. And we worry about money and food and clothes and things and stuff and all the things He tells us that we shouldn't worry about. Now, I'm not here to beat you up for worrying. I'm here to tell you there is hope. There is something so much greater than what you even want. There's something so much greater than even what you are worrying about. And He is able to do what? Exceeding abundantly above anything that we could think or imagine. Yes, He's the prophet, but He's also the Son of God who is God incarnate, the great I Am. When will we trust Him? When will we believe that if I seek Him and His kingdom first, that He will, by His might and wisdom, work everything else out? Now that working out may include a storm. It may include a dark night. But He will cause it all to work together for my good. Which leads us to our last point of application. God's work in our lives takes mysterious forms. Scary forms. Hard forms. And He loves us enough to put us through them so that He can conform us to the image of His very Son. The trial you're experiencing right now is designed to do one thing to help you know Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And having believed that you might have life in His name, which is John's very purpose in writing, which we've really tried to hit every time we've talked about John. John wrote these words, he tells us in the 20th chapter, so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in Him that we might have life in His name. This trial that you're in the middle of, this fire that you are walking through, this storm that you are scared to death right now about, God is using to introduce Himself to you as the great I Am. God will send you into the teeth of the worst storm in order to reveal Himself to you. You will be rowing against the wind. You will be alone. You will despair of your very life. And then, 
then He will come to you. And He'll be walking on the water. He'll be making your problem His pavement. He will show up and He will say, I am. Do not be afraid. And in that moment, when your faith has been stretched to an unrecognizable mess, and you have despaired of yourself, then, then, you will see the full glory and the complete ability of Jesus Christ to meet your every need. But not until you come to the end of yourself, to the end of your effort, to the very center of your fear. To the point of death. Then, you will see His full glory. I want to ask you as we close, do you want to know Jesus Christ as your everything? Do you want to know Him as more than just provider of fish and loaves? Do you want to know Him as more than just somebody who takes good care of me? Do you want to know Him as your everything? Do you want faith that will walk on the water with Him? Then don't be surprised when the wind and the waves start pounding your vessel. In the midst of your fear and despair, look for Him. He sees your situation and He is And to compound it all, He'll bid you step out on the waves with it. Let's pray. God, we've got a long way to go. Our wants are not even right at the moment, God. I I can say that for myself. I don't want the right thing. I want safety and peace. I want blessing. I want joy. Maybe that's not all wrong, but it's not enough. Pray this morning, God, that You would help me to want the right thing that I would have faith in You and not myself, that I would despair of myself, and that I would look to You in the midst of my trial. And I would thank You for the fish and for the loaves. But more than that, God, I would call out to You for the faith to believe that I can walk on the water with You. That I could know You as the risen, glorified Son of God. That I would call upon You and know that You will answer. Who doesn't know that You paid the penalty for their sins on the cross? Pray that Your Spirit would convict them of their sin. And that your spirit would draw them to the God man. That they would know that their sins can be forgiven. 
and that they could have eternal life if they will place their faith in that risen Christ, that they would cease trying to please You, and that they would look to the One who has pleased You. that they would confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God with power. That they would put their faith in Him. For those of us who do know You, God, by Your grace, God, I'm going to pray that You would stretch us. That we might know You.